You're listening to Sermon Audio from Christ Church LeGrand. Uh, grab your Bibles or uh, the Mark journals if you have one of those. We are, uh, we're in chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. So I'll give you a moment to get there and, and uh, kind of work through a couple of things. Um, these, these three stories, these three sections that we've covered, this is the, kind of the third week in this, this middle section, serves really uh, in some ways as kind of like a mini-series right in the middle of the book of Mark. Um, we, we started with, uh, with the story of Jesus calming the storm a couple of weeks ago. And last week, Jesus casts out an army of demons from a man. And then we've got this sort of two um, intertwined stories this week that, that carry a lot of vivid detail. And it, it's, it's a lot more detail than we're accustomed to seeing uh, from Mark so far. Um, his his uh, writing style tends to be a little blunt and a little sparse with the details, but it's interesting in looking at these stories to know that in Mark, each of these is significantly longer than it is in the other accounts in either Matthew or Luke. So this isn't something we've come to expect from Mark is a lot of detail and a lot of vivid imagery. But one thing we've learned already is when, when Mark gives us details, we're, we're meant to pay attention. We're meant to to ponder these stories. So maybe these were, were Peter's favorite stories. Maybe Peter told these ones often, and so they were remembered best. Or maybe they just happened to be Mark's favorite stories, and so he included more details. But whatever the reason why these particular stories are given in such vivid detail, we can know that we're meant to, we're meant to, to know that these are important that we're, we're to ponder these stories and to see the importance in them that the author sees. If he's willing to, to sort of change style and include all of these details, he's, he's trying to, to tell us something. So this is, this is kind of my thought on, on how um, these, these three stories work together, really four stories that are, that are woven together is you get this very tight back-to-back of these stories that give us this massive picture together of who Jesus is, of the real Jesus in action in our world, in the real world, relating to real people that are facing real problems. And and in that, we are confronted then with this present and powerful Jesus. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll get a chance to dig into this as we, as we go through there. But when we, when we see Jesus like this, it's unlike anything that we expect. He, he is unlike what we expect to see. And he's certainly unexpected for the people that are in this story. So it gives us just this massive picture of the supremacy of Christ. And we'll get a, we'll get a glimpse of that again today. One of the... Um, really the overarching theme through these four stories and these three sections can be summed up with the question that the disciples asked in the boat. Storm soaked, but then sitting on recently stilled water, looking at each other with with wild eyes, more scared than they were in the storm, they look at each other and utter this question, a question that, that we've got to answer, a question that the whole world must answer at some point. 
It's the question that, that echoes through the background of this, this whole section. It seems to be almost uttered in hushed tones, if you can see it, but it, it lies beneath that, that great fear that rose up in the men in the boat. It, it lies behind the, the, the motivation of the townsfolk of Gersa, who begged Jesus to leave their country. It's the astonishment and the rude laughter in the story we read today. The gateway to faith. Who then, who then is this man? Who then is this man? Let's look at the section we're in tonight. Mark uh, 21 through, uh, chapter 5, 21 through 43. <clears throat> and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is a little bit of background on just structure as we dig in. This is another example of the storytelling technique that Mark uses several times which is known by this, this really smart, um, very technical-sounding name as called sandwiching. 
Um, and, and so basically, it's, it's where you start one story, and, and another story interrupts it, and then you, you finish that first story. We've seen this a couple of times already, and, and it's, it's a way in which to, to give a bigger, to make a bigger point, that what's in the middle gives you the key to understanding the broader story. And so, you know, in this case, um, the un- understanding the pair of intertwined stories comes from really looking and focusing on that middle piece, looking at the story of the woman to understand then um, the story about Jairus and his daughter. Um, in this case, it, it feels like to me it's a little less cryptic than what we've seen before. Sometimes the last couple of times this sandwich thing has come up, it's almost been like we've got to really dig in to unpack it. It's a, it seems a little bit... Um, more obvious here, maybe because we, we've seen this already. Um, but nonetheless, this is the, the structure once again. So Jesus arrives back on the western shore, back across the Sea of Galilee. Presumably he lands somewhere near Capernaum. It doesn't tell us uh, clearly in the text, but um, it's been a couple of weeks that we've gone over this section. So as a reminder, um, we need to remember that it was just yesterday that he crossed the sea the first time. So, so for us, we, this is kind of spread out over three weeks, but this is back to back and packed together. So he just yesterday set across the sea and faced the great storm and arrived on the other side and cast out the army of demons and was evicted. And now he's coming back across the sea So not exactly um, well-rested as he arrives back on this side. So we need to just, as we look at it, remember the state that Jesus is in, tired. He was exhausted when he left, having been preaching all day to a great crowd of people, and then all of this happening, um, it's back-to-back and tight together. And then as soon as he lands, this great crowd of people swarms him again, thronging about, pushing and and yelling and demanding attention and effectively trapping him there uh, on the beach. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. So we get two pictures in this story, two pictures of desperation. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet. Some of the observations from this. This guy is named. So he's, he's named, and therefore he's a known man. There hasn't been a lot of proper names given in the book of Mark. A lot of people that Jesus is interacting with, but he, Mark's not giving us his proper name just so that we know his name. We're supposed to learn something from that. This is Mark's style, remember. He's giving us Jairus' proper name so that we can know that this is a known man a prominent man in, in, this, in this community. He's a ruler of the synagogue, a man of position. He carries a certain amount of prominence here. Ruler of the synagogue is, is not the same as priest. It, this isn't like a professional vocational clergy necessarily. It's more of like the top hired person at, at, the, at the local synagogue. He was in charge of um, facilitating worship. He would be responsible for uh, taking care of the building, for arranging just various aspects of the weekly service, bringing speakers in, getting a hold of the scrolls that they needed to do the study and, and the reading. So he's not necessarily a priest, but he's a man of prominence and a man of position here. And so remember, Jesus has not been well received by the Jewish leadership. So 
even though this guy Jairus is, is not a priest and not a Pharisee, for him to come to Jesus like this is a departure from party lines, so to speak. Clearly, he's in a desperate situation. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. She's in the act of dying as we speak. So you've got to come. And maybe maybe there's something to this guy, Jesus, and, and maybe he'll come with me. Maybe if I approach him the right way, maybe, maybe he'll come with me. And maybe the things that I've heard are true. And, and maybe this is just a totally last-ditch effort. But if, but if it works, but if the things that I've heard are true, and if he would come with me, and, and, and if he can heal her of, of this sickness, then, then maybe it's all worth it. Maybe it's all worth it to cross party lines and to jeopardize my own job even, my own position, because if it works, if it's really him, if it's all true, then I'll have my daughter back. This is a point of desperation, and he's not trying to hide it. He comes to Jesus in the middle of a, of a massive crowd coming to him on behalf of his daughter, who he clearly loves, falling at Jesus' feet. This is a symbol of bold humility. There's hope and there's some measure of faith in his approach. And then he's interrupted. Jesus starts to go with him and the crowds throng and, and press about always pressing, always crowding, always hindering what Jesus is trying to do. And then we're introduced to the middle part of this story. A, a desperate woman silently pushes through the crowd. So this, this story, this section starts with a story of pending tragedy. And then it's interrupted and we're confronted now with a story of ongoing tragedy. So there's a really beautiful contrast there. She comes to Jesus in desperation. If you look at verse 26, uh, I'll begin in verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, who had spent all she had and was no better off, but rather grew worse. It's deliberately desperate description of stacking up words to make sure that we understand that it's only ever gotten worse no matter what she did. She's at a total loss. Everything she had is gone. Not a newly developing desperation, but this ongoing, compounding, chronic tragedy of, of a severe physical ailment. For 12 years, that's been draining energy, draining her bank accounts, draining her life of any semblance of comfort or connection. If you consider the, the cultural context to be chronically sick like this, a sickness that was growing increasingly worse, certainly paid a, a physical toll. It certainly paid a toll on her, her mind and on her body, but especially in a Jewish context when this involves blood. She was perpetually unclean, perpetually cut off from her people. So this has forced on her a spiritual and an emotional toll that she's approaching in absolute desperation at the end of her rope with nothing to give, no human contact allowed, no hugs from her family if she had any left. 
No gathering with her neighbors for meals. No going to synagogue. You, you weren't allowed to do these things. You were shunned. You were outcast. And like, like the man with the legion of demons who was relegated to the tombs, it's just assumed that everything's wrong with her. Everything must be wrong with you. So she's not supposed to be here. She's not supposed to come into a crowd like this. She's not supposed to, to touch people, to, to press through a crowd. She's lost everything. No dignity left, no money left, and no one was going to Jesus on her behalf. She's completely alone in this. There's some of that contrast with the story of Jairus. She isn't named in the story. She isn't known. She's not supposed to be here. The crowd didn't part as she approached Jesus like it probably did for Jairus. This is a great risk for her because it's simply strictly forbidden to be in a crowd like this. To violate the law to this degree, to violate social order to this degree, but she'd heard, she'd heard the reports of Jesus and she believed. So she comes up to him from behind. And so you've got to picture that. There's a significance in there. That following, a deliberate following in Mark is always a sign of faith and a symbol of faith. She comes up to Jesus from behind. If I could just touch his robe. If I could only get that close. Verse 28 gives us this picture of faith. If I could, if I could only get close enough just to touch his robe. And he doesn't even have to know I'm here. And it would be better if he didn't know I was here. Because I don't want him to look at me in this pitiful place. It would be better if he didn't even know, but if I could just get close enough, just close enough to him to touch the edge of his garment, uh, that's all it will take. I'd be healed if I could just get that close, that close. So she's, she's healed then. This faith-filled touch of reaching out to Jesus, and she knows immediately that this 12 years of misery has come to an end. The 12 years of infirmity, of sickness of separation has ended like that. And then the, the fascinating line, Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. I honestly, not exactly sure what to do with that. I don't know how that works exactly. But we get a, we get a chance to see Jesus' heart because he doesn't have any time to spare. There's a little girl who's dying. There isn't a moment to spare and right here he takes one. He stops to look. And, and the scene sort of pulls in close as Jesus asks, who touched me? And his disciples give a little bit of a sarcastic response. But the focus draws in and sort of the, the crowd sort of blurs out into the background and Jesus looks at her. So you have this moment where perpetually unclean and eternally, infinitely clean make eye contact. And it's a beautiful moment that just melts her at his feet. That he sees her. And she falls at his feet and tells him everything. The whole truth. She doesn't hold anything back. 
all the pain she's experienced, all the years of separation, all the hope that she had had over and over and over and over, and maybe just this one time this was going to work, and it, and it did, and she was healed. She tells him everything, that she's healed. And then you get this just beautiful scene where Jesus is restoring this separated, unnamed, unknown woman with, a, with an affectionate name. Daughter. And it's not just daughter. It's more like daughter of God. And for Jesus to say that, he's saying daughter of mine. You're mine. This is an affectionate, loving, close name. And there's a, I keep using the word ferocious in these stories, but I mean it. There's a ferociousness to this kind of tenderness. To stand in the middle of a crowd that had increasingly ignored this woman for 12 years. And Jesus leans in close and calls her an affectionate name that no one had called her in years. It's a beautiful scene. He's not repulsed. He's not shocked. They would have expected that from him. Instead, he wants to know her. Instead, he wants to know who she is. She had come to Jesus in faith, which he affirms, daughter, your faith has made you well. But he looked for her in the crowd. It wasn't good enough for him just to know that he'd done something good. Just to know that power had gone out and something good had happened back there somewhere. He, he wanted to know her, to look her in the eyes. He knew something that, that she didn't quite know yet. She had come to him for something. She had come to him to, to be healed. But her greatest need, her greatest desire is in him. He would know that. She, she probably doesn't know that yet. And apparently it doesn't because she tried to remain unknown. But her desire to be made whole again is a desire for Jesus. And so he gives her in this affectionate, kind, tender scene, he gives her that greater desire even though it was unnamed and unknown to her. There's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then verse 35 jolts us back to that first story. It feels fairly abrupt, this tender scene cut short as we hear that the little girl had died. Verses 35 um, through 36 give us a, a, a view of this faith-filled response. Jesus had overheard, um, which could be translated that he heard with the report. He heard the messengers and just ignored it. That's, that's what it means there. He overheard it and ignored it, and he turns to Jairus. And so here's where the story of the woman confronts Jairus, who's standing nearby, who had just seen this happen. And he's got to answer that ringing question. Jairus had faith that Jesus could, hail, could heal his little girl if, if he came quickly. Please come, quickly, before it's too late but it's too late now. Why bother the teacher anymore, it says. And Jesus ignores the report and, and confronts Jairus with, with this decision. Do you believe what makes sense in the real world 
Do you believe that circumstances determine what's possible, that the physical reality and the laws of space and time have closed the door on, on the divine? Or do you believe in this God-man who is not bound by such things? Do you believe in something that seems impossible, but you've come to the right place? Do you believe something that seems unreal in a concrete world? So you can, you can almost imagine with the, the structure and the scene of how this is set up, that Jesus almost gesturing to the woman nearby saying, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And the woman provides for Jairus this tremendous example of, of faith. Not blind belief, but faith based on seeing Jesus correctly. Faith based on knowing Jesus for who He is. And to face that ringing question then, who is this? Who is this man? In verse 37 through 40, we get a picture of discipleship. I'm going to come back to, to some of this, but let me, let me finish this section out. In verse 37, it says, Jesus only allows a few to come with him. Those who, those who follow him closely, his, his closest guys, come as an example of faith. So there's a couple things that are accomplished here. They have an opportunity. Peter, James, and John have an opportunity in, in this scene now to follow Jesus into a new scenario, into a resurrection. We haven't had one of those before. Not yet. And then they have the opportunity to be an example of what faith looks like for the little girl's parents. This is a picture, an image of, of what discipleship looks like. Walk with me as I walk with Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus kicks everyone else out of there because some one of the things we've seen and what's true here too is those who have no faith, those who have not come to Jesus for who he is, they're not allowed inside. Everyone else is removed from the room and he takes the girl's parents in along with his guys, creating an opportunity in this for her parents to follow him. For them to do what the woman had done. Follow him in faith to believe in the present power of who Jesus is. So with a word, with a touch, with gentleness, with tenderness, Jesus raises this little girl back from the dead. So we need to ad address briefly this only sleeping remark because this is, this is a resurrection. The, the mourners in this scene, those that are weeping and wailing and causing all of the commotion would have been likely in this, in this scenario would have been hired professionals. This was a, a cultural expectation. Especially if you're a man of prominence, you would have hired a lot of professional mourners to make a lot of noise when someone died. This is, this is what you did. Now, everyone knows that we're sad. 
because there's lots of people weeping and wailing. And their wailing then turns to a derisive kind of laughter at Jesus' comment. So think about that. These, this is their job. This is their profession. They go to funerals and, and weep. They're not accustomed to being fooled by little girls sleeping, right? When he says, why, why, why are you causing such a commotion? They laugh, turning from mourning to laughter just like that. So we can take this as evidence. The little girl had died. The, the report from the messenger, the presence of the mourners, their response to Jesus' words, the way this is constructed, this is, this is a resurrection. So from Jesus' perspective, with Jesus' power, that's not limited by the physical realm, she was sleeping and waiting for that gentle touch, for those soft words of her Savior. Of Jesus to enter the room. And in the last bit of that scene, we're reminded of Jesus' humanity. There's a glimpse there of his tenderness, of his human empathy, that, that she's going to be hungry. It's such a simple thing, but look, dying and being resurrected is a lot for one day. So he just brings to their attention that she's going to be hungry. You should get her something to eat. If we zoom out a little bit and look at these, these two stories together, what lessons can we draw from this? Faith is central to it, but it's bigger than that. We see courageous faith in, in Jairus to cross party lines and to pursue Jesus into the crowd and to fall at his feet with this bold kind of humility. We see the courageous faith of this unnamed woman to, to push through the crowd in her approach to Jesus. We see this picture of discipleship as, as, as Jesus takes his guys with him. Follow me here. I'm going to do something you've never seen before. There's a picture of discipleship there, but what of the little girl? What lesson is, do we get from her? There have been 12 years where this woman had tried everything on her own, sick and only getting worse, life only getting more and more and more and more unbearable. And at the same time, look at that, for the same 12 years, a little girl was growing up, learning to talk, learning to walk, making friends, playing outside, and now beginning to even have some dreams and hopes of a future and what life would look like as she's growing up. There's, there's a, a breathtaking convergence of, of pre-existing backstories in this moment. One that's increasingly tragic, one that was increasingly hopeful. But what lesson in this do we get from the little girl? If Jairus and the woman would both be examples of, of faith in action, here's what you do. You put your boots on, you cross party lines if you need to, you push through the crowd if you need to. If they're examples of faith in action, what do we learn from the little girl? In every case, and this, this, these are prime examples, 
In every case, faith is utterly dependent on the presence and power of Jesus. It's utterly dependent on Him. So if we can learn anything from these 12 unwritten years of history that are leading up to this point, it's Jesus who stepped into humanity to make this moment possible in the first place. It's Jesus who set aside His glory as God to become man, to walk this earth, to step in so that the unknown and unrecorded history could converge in this moment. So we can learn from these lessons of of faith in action. But what underpins all of it is a Savior who pursues, a Savior who steps in, a Savior who goes, who has come. What underpins faith is Jesus who stands supreme over all of these things. For 12 years, a woman tried everything in her power to heal herself and came up empty. So in her emptiness, she went to Jesus. And for that same 12 years, a little girl grew up unaware of the tragedy that was ahead. So Jesus, in his fullness, went to her. The commonality in these stories is is Christ. So I want to zoom out as we bring it to a close and look at, look at these, these four stories together from the end of, of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5. In these series of stories, Jesus cares for men and he cares for women. He cares for adults and he cares for children. He cares for those who have nothing and those who have something. He cares for those who are named, Jairus by name. His disciples are named. And he cares for those who are unnamed, the demon-possessed man and this woman. He cares for those in high position, and he cares for those who would go unnoticed. He cares for those who seem to have it all together, and for those who clearly don't cares for those with the ability to come to him and he pursues those who don't in their most desperate hour. We see the humanity of Jesus in his physical exhaustion falling asleep in the back of a boat, in his compassion, in his tenderness, in his empathy. We see the deity of Jesus His creative, transformative power, a voice that even the wind and the waves would obey, a voice that even death obeys. He calms a sudden storm. He reverses 12 years of heartache. He writes a happy ending for a sick woman. And he rewrites a tragic ending for a delightful young girl. He transforms a demon-possessed man into a missionary and he challenges his own disciples to truly see him. So, you're in that list somewhere. 
And Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. He pursues you. And your greatest desire and your greatest need is for him and more of it. A bigger view and a bigger understanding of who Jesus is. He knows you intimately and personally. And he's not shocked or surprised or disgusted or dismayed by anything. He loves you. He knows even when you don't that what you desire most is him. So maybe there's a story for you, something like this woman, that it's, it's been 12 years of trying to do it on your own. And it just doesn't work. Then reach out. He seeks you out for your own good and for his glory. In Christ and to Christ, you are named and you are known. He has a tender name for you, something like mine. So we may not have faced a deadly storm at sea, but we know what it's like to feel overwhelmed by the chaos of life. Even those of us that are pretty good at hiding it know what that feels like. In Jesus, we have the Creator who steps into that chaos in order to bring peace. We may not have been possessed by thousands of demons, but on some level, we know what it's like to feel that something or maybe even everything is just wrong with our very selves. In Jesus, we have that ferocious rescuer who has crossed the greatest divide to arrive on your shore and will make all things right. We may not have battled this chronic illness for 12 years, but we all know what it's like to, to just feel a little dirty and to feel incomplete feel like there's nothing we can do and no matter how hard we try to feel unknown, to feel unwanted, to feel outcast and left out. In Jesus, we have a healer who became unclean in order to give us his cleanness, to restore us with a name and a place in the kingdom of God. We may not have faced death itself, but we will. And in Jesus, we have a resurrected Savior who has faced our own death, the death that we deserve, he faced off with and died on our behalf in order to give us life. So in those in those dark moments of, of the heart when, when we're finally really, truly honest with ourselves. 
when we finally see our need to be healed, to be remade, to be calmed, to be restored. It's ultimately Jesus and Jesus alone who meets us in that place and who has gone to the Father on our behalf. So reach out then in faith like this woman. Reach out. Follow Jesus in faith like Jairus did. Run towards him and beg for mercy like that demon-possessed man falling at his feet. And then stand in awe, in, in utter amazement and increasing amazement of who Jesus is like his disciples did in the boat. And receive new life as a gift like this little girl who contributed nothing to the story but her need. We must continually answer this question. Who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who, who is this man that even the demons hear his voice and tremble who is this man that sickness flees in his presence? Who is this man for whom death is not final? This is the culmination of these stories as they've progressed through that salvation is ultimately from death. His power over all of these things, over creation, over the supernatural, over the natural, over sickness and health is, is made ultimate in this scene where death is not the end. Death doesn't undo him. Jesus stands in this massive place of power over death even. So I want to leave you with a couple of action items. Consider what you need to bring to Jesus, like this woman. What do you need to bring to him? He knows. He's not repulsed and he's not shocked. He won't turn away. He has a tender response so what, what, do, what do you need to bring to Jesus? And then secondly, who do you need to bring Jesus to? On whose behalf will you go to Jesus? Like Jairus did. Going to Jesus on behalf of his little girl who had nothing who didn't know, who couldn't help it, who couldn't... Who do you need to bring Jesus to? Think of specific names. Who do you know who needs to know Jesus? Again, he's not shocked. He's not repulsed. He doesn't turn away. He presses in closer. Closer. 